Hey friends, before the show I'd like to plug the store of our friends at Terracotta Distribution. At their storefront, shop.terracottadistribution.com, you'll find a wide range of Asian DVDs and Blu-rays from Kim Kidak to Jackie Chan, from Ho Shao Shen to Bloody Muscle Bodybuilder in Hell, aka the Japanese Evil Dead. This was even put out on a limited run VHS, folks. New titles are being added regularly, and if you go to shop.terracottadistribution.com and enter the discount code POFN. 10 that's p-o-f-n-1-0 this gives podcast on fire network listeners 10 percent off at checkout the discount code is p-o-f-n-10 and visit shop.terracottadistribution.com for more and let's get on with the show Welcome to Podcast on Fire on Stoner and Shatter. George Lazenby goes to Hong Kong, as does Hammer Films. And in 1974, we got a pair of modern-day punch-ups paired up, uh, if you will, where Golden Harvest and Shaw Brothers opened their doors to overseas guests. The results uh, were the George Lazenby starer Stoner at Golden Harvest, and Hammer and Shaw gave us Shatter. And uh, what you're listening to is our Versus series, programmed by POF historian Jay Lee, where we pair up similarly themed movies, movies that deals in same content, character, and while it's not a sort of deadly, desperate Thunderdome situation where someone needs to emerge victorious. I wish it was. <laughs> yeah, it might have been a fun fight, but we have still dubbed this the Versus series, and it's sort of optional if you want to say, you know, one one. Uh, is better than the other in this selection and in this selection Jay sort of dubbed uh, a western protagonist in Hong Kong movies so that's why Stoner and Shatter were uh, selected my name is Kenny B, with me as you heard is uh, the ever so lovely Tom KW, say hi buddy going a bit too far there Ken, already just calm down, honestly with the compliments just, just, just chill out take a step back Bubbly, um, I'm, 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 I'm simmering today yeah, simmering that's fine that's cool simmering yeah I'm, I'm okay I'm alright I'm, I'm pretty good got got my tax back you know a few weeks ago so that was pretty good got myself a new pair of pants with that so that, that was pretty nice but that's it really nothing else has happened to me in my life for the past three months so yeah nothing has happened for the last three years over here so it's all that's, that's I'm catching up with you slowly, day by day. We're gonna we're gonna get there. Okay, I'm gonna beat your world record of doing absolutely nothing. I'm I'm coming for you. I'm, I'm doing absolutely nothing in terms of fun. I'm all, only doing things in terms of work and work and focus and structure and routine and getting this stuff done. That's fun. All those things you mentioned are underrated. It's, it's the life's blood of uh, of uh, yeah of life, working, being busy. I, I think people, the youth, could take some notes from you, Ken. The youths. Those as well. Yeah, both of them. Both of them. Both those groups. Always, uh, always, a, good, always a good time to reference uh, my cousin Vinny whenever I can find uh, the opportunity. So I say Just fit it youths. in wherever you can. So that's uh, w- w- welcome to the Versus series, for heaven's sake, Tom. I mean, uh, yeah, man. this is a delightful little, um, I don't know, 
it's not sidetracked necessarily, but but it is a series of sorts where the pair-ups that Jay has prepared for us, they're not the obvious choices, maybe not the most grand classics from Golden Harvest or Shaw Brothers or wherever they come from, in independent studios versus a studio uh, movie. But uh, it's the theme that remains, in all honesty, inspiring to do. It's uh, motivating to do. That's why I very much enjoyed putting together this episode and watching these two Hong Kong movies slash uh, Hong Kong uh, UK co-productions uh, with a western lead paired up with uh, with the Hong Kong uh, talent of the day so um, it's a winning episode based on that selection alone but are they winning movies well we'll get to that in a very short bit in the meantime uh, let's uh, rattle off some uh, contact information this is podcast on fire and the versus series on podcastonfire.com You'll find this show under its own category uh, versus series, but obviously you'll find the entire back catalogue of Podcast on Fire and the likes uh, over on our site, podcastonfire.com. We also do shows on Korean cinema and Japanese cinema. We have our director series, of course, that me and Tom are uh, hosting, and there's a plethora of bonus episodes available to you as well. And you can also join us over on social media, of course, uh, if you... uh, want to join the discussion group to follow show updates and discussion topics and etc etc click the facebook button at the top of our uh, website Uh, that'll get you to our page and then you can just type in podcast on fire network on facebook to reach the group you can also uh, click the twitter button to follow our twitter feed and uh, the itunes uh, button to subscribe to us and uh, if you are a person who likes to click things and write things then click uh, leave us a star rating and even write a little uh, blurb uh, in the form of a review uh, in terms of what you thought of the show good or bad we would very much love to hear from you and uh, i also oh by the way you can also stream us on stitcher radio and spotify of course and i write about a variety of hong kong and taiwanese movies over on sogoodreviews.com and my tweets are available at so good reviews so that's uh that's uh contact information um we have some um extra information outside of the movie review so the first section uh, that will involve 1974's stoner and uh, but we'll first talk a little of the uh, career of its uh, uh, western star well australian star obviously uh george lazenby and we we'll then review and discuss that film stoner uh, after the break we'll uh, talk a little bit about uh, the conception and the troubled production of uh, shatter very much troubled production. amping up the drama again amp it up come on get people continuing to listen <laughs> must listen till the end let's just say this um the the director was fired after disagreeing with the producer every day there is some pretty cool details to come here so after we've uh, talked the background of shatter we then review and discuss that film <laughs> But 
let's uh, get on with it. Uh, Stoner from 1974, and the plot goes as uh, follows. Uh, George Lazenby plays American cop, although the trailer seems to go with him being an, an Australian cop, but there you go. Every, but he plays American cop, uh, I believe it was Joshua Stoner. Joshua Stoner. Uh, who goes to Hong Kong to stop the new drug Happy Pill, which is a mixture of heroin and aphrodisiac, uh, and to exact a little personal revenge uh, as well in the meantime. A parallel investigation is headed by Taiwan policewoman Li Xiaohu, played by Angela Mao, who's, who's suspecting the smugglers are using old uh, Taiwanese boats to ship the drugs into Hong Kong. Traces uh, leads to a local temple where the sick and poor go to have their illnesses cured. Let me just ask you off the bat, despite his one-time stint as Bond, favorite Bond? Or is it two or three on your list? I think it's pretty... It's pretty tough to say. It's 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 kind of hard to say that he's the best Bond because I mean, doing only one film, there's you know so little to. Is it a case of the movie being pretty great, but he uh, didn't excel as Bond? I think the film's one of the greatest. We're talking about obviously on a Manchester Secret Service. I think it's one of the best. Yeah, it's a shame that he didn't do kind of any more. But some bad advice, you know, from an agent kind of stopped that putting into that. But yeah, I mean, the one film that he did do you know kind of sits in the uh in the top echelon of the bond films for certain but yeah he was he was so is it connery more lazenby for you or do you slot more in before lazenby can you should have you give me some preparation on this i mean i did the homework give me at least a couple of weeks to think about this i mean putting me on the spot right Gut now. feeling my it's friend so Gut hard, feeling. man <laughs> he's 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 somewhere in the middle he's somewhere in the middle that's fair he's in the kind of the belly area. George is the belly of the Bonds. Yeah, I'm going to go with belly. I'm feeling myself right now. I'm Excellent. Belly. We'll, we'll put a pin go uh, in that and that, that fact is solidified. Let's go to Wikipedia, <laughs> enter that, and uh, let's continue. with. Uh, <laughs> first of all, kind of, why the heck... Um, we'll talk of his career a little bit in detail, but why the heck George Lazenby, former one-time James Bond, ended up in a Hong Kong movie? Um, I mean, his one and only Bond movie, as uh, Tom said, was 1969's On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And by 1973, George was apparently, in his own words, flat broke. He had set up a meeting with Bruce Lee and Raymond Chow at that time in Hong Kong uh, that uh, held an offer to appear in what would have been Bruce's second film as... um, a director, A Game of Death. Uh, George was slated to appear in some shape or form. Apparently this was July 19th, 1973. And the day after, Bruce Lee collapsed and died from uh, what was diagnosed as cerebral edema. Or edema, I don't know. Uh, but uh, that's the diagnosis uh, that's uh, going around. It's not a curse, uh, according to Wikipedia anyway, but uh, people are still <laughs> clinging on to that sort of uh, family curse, but whatever. More interesting that way, Ken. I suppose so. Uh, George Lazenby was actually meant to meet Bruce that day for lunch, but um, uh, the day before was the last, uh, was the, I suppose, first time and last time they met. Uh, to launch George in Hong Kong was an idea that remained, though. And a project for Golden Harvest called The Golden Needles of Ecstasy, which sounds interesting. That was announced, but it didn't materialize. Uh, but the three other projects for George did at Golden Harvest 1974's Stoner. The Hong Kong Australian co production, The Man from Hong Kong, and 1976's A Queen's Ransom, which was sort of an all star gathering of uh, talent, including, uh, including George. Uh, so he had a little career over there in Hong Kong, and uh, Ma- Man from Hong Kong, presumably he, he uh, went home 
to shoot at uh, he, uh, his bits have been in, in Australia, or at least exterior bits. I don't know if he came back to Hong Kong to do set work on at the Golden Harvest stages where where he was set on fire. Uh, in, a, in a pretty good uh, fire start by uh, by good old George in uh, the man from Hong Kong. Jumped in himself there and uh, got it done. Exactly. But uh, a short look back on the career, I suppose, um, b- before Bond, uh, before Hong Kong is in order. And uh, George was born in 1939 in Gullbourne, New South Wales, Australia. Pardon me if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Uh, he was working in London uh, in his uh, adult years, uh, doing a proper job. He was a used car salesman when he was spotted by a talent scout to thought he should go into modeling, which sounds like it's such a creepy profession to just go around and look at people. <laughs> like, hello, you could be a model. Here's my card. Here's my business card. <laughs> Great minds think alike. <laughs> but it was legit because he, he, he hit it big, um, appearing in advertisements for, uh, among others, Fry's Chocolate Bars. Uh, he was also voted top model model of the year in 1966 uh, so after sean connery had done his at the time uh, last movie as bond uh, james bond 1967's you only live twice he came back uh, uh, again after george lazenby had done his movie uh, the producers of the bond franchise saw potential in george lazenby watching him in one of his commercials and george went through costume fittings and a screen test and he left an impression with um maybe not his acting ability but his ability to display aggression and physicality was something uh, the makers singled out uh, so they and they, they, they sort of saw the confidence and the sexual assurance that the role needed I think it was basically Harry Saltzman and uh, Cubby Broccoli seeing him punch a stuntman during his screen test, basically, which <laughs> landed him the job. <laughs> it's as simple as that, guys. It's as simple as that. <laughs> and the production went ahead, uh, even though they weren't uh, sure of uh, the acting per se, but they went ahead with um, Honor Majesty's uh, Secret Service uh, with the new James Bond that then promptly started to ruffle feathers with his attitude apparently George felt the producers or someone else uh, maybe influencing him he felt that the producers didn't listen to him due to him being a new kid on the block and uh, not being familiar with the film business and Lazenby expressed uh, publicly that he didn't want to get stuck in one role maybe again this is the bad advice talking Um, but you know the the thing was they sort of tried to tell him that even though the role had been lucrative for Sean Connery that happened as he stuck with the role. Dr. No didn't set Connery's bank account on fire. No, I mean, he was only a massive star by, you know, third, fourth film by the time kind of Thunderbird, Thunderbirds. <laughs> yeah, that was, <laughs> I loved him in Thunderbirds. It was fantastic. Kind of see the way, he, you know, moved his arms with those strings, strings attached to them was fantastic. Uh, yeah, by, you know, Thunderball kind of, and obviously You Only Live Twice, where it got, you know, huge, huge. He, he had to, you know, be in the role for a good amount of time to kind of really, you know, earn that kind of that fandom and that kind of reputation for sure. And and unfortunately, yeah, George just didn't. didn't Which get I agree to that with, point. but like uh, regardless if it's, it was George's attitude or bad advice, it is bad advice, and it it, it is a bad attitude uh, to to expect uh, you to uh, be the king of the world after 120 minutes of celluloid, you know. Yeah, and obviously coming, you know, it being his, uh, you know, first film, and him kind of coming from that background whereas obviously connery had done acting before you know roger moore done acting before it was they were already kind of you know somewhat kind of recognized obviously uh, as as actors and kind of as kind of leading men whereas obviously george didn't didn't have that unfortunately behind him so yeah i think it was it was a a mixture of things you know really like going wrong 
you know, it was lucky that we got such a good film out of it because there was quite a few kind of issues surrounding surrounding his time as Bond. Yeah, yeah. Even his co-stars felt that George made a foolish move by by bailing, but, you know, because it was new. Uh, they, they thought like he should earn his stripes, and Definitely, there's not always yeah. such a thing as instant success. And you don't know best after having one experience, so you stick with it. You learn, you earn your stripes, as I said. But uh, apparently, Lazenby or uh, his representation stuck uh, to his guns and uh, saying he was done after on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and he wanted to pursue other ventures in film, and that's where the actual last uh, Sean Connery film happened with uh, Diamonds Are Forever uh, as he came back for one more film uh, but uh, I was liked the reason he got back was to set up a charity I believe uh, Sean Connery got two two films out of it produced of his of his choice and yeah basically got donated his fee to uh, yeah Jordan's charity in Scotland which is uh, yeah really really noble of him and awesome uh, so George went on, he wanted to work with uh, other um, people and uh, as reviews started to uh, trickle in, uh, they were lukewarm, but they're, they're kind of not now, but but they were lukewarm in regards to the newcomer, so the movie yeah. uh, wasn't uh, the most well-reviewed Bond movie at the time. And uh, uh, as we mentioned, there, there are also notes out there that his representation assured him that James Bond was a fat and wouldn't belong in the liberated 70s, we, we, which, you know, might have been a gut feeling that felt correct at the time, but certainly Bond became stronger and stronger. And, uh, you know, f- think of your will what uh, of the movies in the 70s. Uh, most of them are absolutely acceptable. Uh, really all are absolutely acceptable in, in some shape or form. Um, up until you know um, some of the last ones, but um, you know it's a it's a choice they made that uh, Bond was gonna go away in favor of um, something else, uh, maybe harder action, more gritty action. Who knows? But uh, Bond didn't go away. Well, it's 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 right. I mean, in, in thinking that, yeah, I mean that kind of harder, kind of grittier filmmaking, you know, was becoming more and more apparent, and and that was you know such a big part of the early seventies, you know, Hollywood um, landscape. So you know, in some ways, it, it it is correct. And again, the Bond films that you know did struggle during the seventies, at least at least critically, um, you know, commercially not too bad at all. But yeah, at least critically, it was. Not as kind of um, perfect as, say, the um, review of, you know, say the 60s kind of output. Um, you know, the 70s was a bit kind of hit and miss uh, critically. So, I mean, in some, in some respects, it's, it's it's a kind of fair view. Um, but again, whether we should have just stuck with it for, you, you know, stuck At with it for one a bit. More film, who knows? Yeah, yeah, you know, stayed on, stayed on the, uh, the ride for a bit more and kind of see what he could have achieved. But... Yeah, bit of a shame, but they they got there in the end with it. And um... I mean, the reviews now are quite uh, solid, and even Lazenby, at least his physical presence, is rang is, is ranked very high, and it, it is a good film. I, I've seen it once because uh, I, I never saw it on DVD or VHS, so I saw it for the first time on the blue, and uh, it, it it's a it's a solid um, solid film and excellent action, and uh, got some brave choices in there that you don't expect from from a Bond film. Uh, but I don't want to spoil that, of course. Um, so in the wake of Bond, Lazenby appeared in and helped uh, write the 1971 movie Universal Soldier, described by himself as anti-guns, anti-Bond, and a comedy with a plot. So, okay, fine. I haven't seen it, so I don't know. <laughs> it's like, a, it, it's, a, it's the greatest thing, essentially, that's what he's saying, because it's, it's got all of these things. Uh, it's, uh, it takes a stance and it's funny. Sold out so, well. 
Uh, but he did find transitioning out of Bond a problem because of his reputation of being difficult. And uh, Bay has, in re- retrospect, spoken of that he doesn't re- regret what he did because he didn't harm anyone uh, uh, as he burned some bridges, except himself. You know, so so at least he puts it on himself that uh, yeah, you know, I had I had a hand in that, even though advice might have been coming in, but I still had a hand in uh, making my choices. So. Uh, he took to Italy, making the 1972 movie Who Saw Her Die, which has also over time earned critical acclaimed, acclaim. Um, and the Hong Kong period happened, as we spoke of. And uh, after that, Lazenby returned to modeling and the world of advertisement uh, and also relocated to Hollywood, trying to reactivate his acting career and study the craft. Uh, but I suppose the 70s through the 90s could be seen as more sporadic in terms of working. Seems like he mixed epi- episodic work on TV series, made TV movies, uh, um, but one of his biggest ventures in recent years was uh, the, the documentary Becoming Bond, which was, uh, I suppose, a documentary drama about the early life of George Lazenby and the casting of him in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, where Lazenby speaks of his life, um, this time in the spotlight, and uh, his life post-Bond. And the program then also mixes dramatized uh, sections of uh, George's uh, life. And I, I haven't seen it yet because I'm... Um, I, I never, I mean, I'm judging it, but I never did quite like the sound of documentary and dramatization because it, but, but maybe it's good acting, maybe it's good drama, maybe it's good filmmaking uh, as they drama, uh, put, put a, a dramatized sort of spin on the real events. Yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same, really. I think going into it, I was thinking I'd rather just obviously watch George kind of talk about his life rather than see, you know, reenactments of it. But yeah, it's it's fantastic. Um, really, really good. And I think if you want to see Lazenby's thoughts and kind of his own kind of views on what happened um, as his time's Bond, it's it's the way to go. And uh, yeah, got a Bond connection. Jane Seymour's in the reenactment as well. As uh, okay, cool. Playing uh, playing someone in his life or Jane Seymour? No, it'd be good if she was playing, you know, Doctor Quinn. But unfortunately, <laughs> uh, no, it was uh, it was someone uh, in his in his kind of life story. So uh, okay. yeah, there's that. But yeah, it's 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 really good. Don't let that kind of you know put you back from watching it because it, it's good. Works really well. It's a sort of a honest and introspective and sort of the, that you know it's not a clean sanitized view. He admits to mistakes. Is it that kind of angle to it? Or? Definitely. Yeah, it's just kind of him, you know, giving you the full scoop on kind of how he felt about it. And yeah, I think, it, you know, it's it's getting old as well, isn't it? I think it kind of puts, you know, in, in hindsight's kind of um, everything, isn't it, really looking back on your life. And I think he probably sees that he made a few mistakes as his time, as his time has bond. But yeah, being young, gay, overrated. <laughs> okay, there it is. Um, so we're at the review stage of Stoner, is Hong Kong movie, and I, and I mean, for, for my short opinion, it, it, honestly, it it's obviously not the second coming of George Lazenby, and it's uh, it's uh, Hong Kong filmmakers and Golden Harvest in territory they're not terribly confident that because it's a modern day actioner, it does bring to life and becomes a pretty harmless watch for a couple of reasons. Main one being that George doing the action under the direction of Sammo uh, is very watchable. It's evident that they clicked uh, because uh, we, we don't get a lot of George doubling. Uh, he uses George as a brawler and it works very well. And also, if you dig Golden Harvest, if you dig their players uh, that appeared from movie to movie, their style, and even though, again, this is modern day and they're not as comfortable doing that, you have, at least I had a decent enough time you know, watching it for the Golden Harvest feel and also being kind of um, impressed uh, with the way Samo 
who was the co-action director, utilized George. But in many ways, it was also poor. But I, I perked up enough times as well. So it, it, it's a mixed bag, but impressed at points, you know. Uh, I kind of agree. Yeah, I think it, it's not a lot of fun, but it's uh, it's an interesting curio piece for, you know, at least it's cast and it's kind of locales and uh, obviously kind of who's who of big Hong Kong stars that are just kind of stuntmen at this point uh, in their careers, uh, knocking about. It was fun just kind of seeing who, who, who came up like during the fight scene. So that's uh, one game you can play during it. Did you, you spot? Um, did you spot the very young Eric Tsang? I spotted Eric. I did. I spotted Yu Um like Jumping around, waiting for their turn, kind of action direction. To get in, yeah, waiting to get in and start scrapping. Yeah, um, but yeah, it, it's it's not really unique enough to kind of stand out from you know the rest of the pack, if I'm honest. But it's got at least enough interesting um, interesting things in it to kind of make it worth a watch for sure is that the highlight you think the way samo and uh, the, the the other action director whether they worked side by side or on different aspects uh chan chun the way they utilize george is that a watchable aspect for you i think so yeah i mean if lazenby or you know or samo or lazenby and, and samo are on screen i mean you know i think the the choreography itself is obviously kind of decent you know basher type kickboxing choreography it feels right on the borderline for me between that early 70s style and the more complicated shapes of the late 70s i think wang Yin sick probably comes out of it looking the best if, if i'm being honest although yeah i mean everyone does does ace george samo uh angela mao um but yeah wang Yin sick probably under under underutilized unfortunately but he does come up at the end and start kicking ass he he got his time to shine in some uh, Golden Harvest movies, but uh, at other points he was just brought in and, as a baddie. I mean, he's great in Hapkido. He plays a bad guy. In, uh, he plays yeah. a good guy, for heaven's sake. Good guy in, in Hapkido. Hapkido. Yeah. When Taekwondo strikes, um, it's, uh, he plays a baddie and has a sex scene as well, so we got to see some titties. Uh, but, but he's a fantastic uh, physical performer. Um, so, in the beginning stages, you can totally see that uh, it's a very kind of shoddy insecure film in the way it directs uh, the tough cop narrative as george goes around uh, kicking doors in and interrogating people and it's re- it's a bit awkward as it navigates those cop tropes cops and robber tropes uh searching for the bad guy getting revenge tropes yeah. i can definitely see golden harvest felt more comfortable working the sword play working the martial arts rather than uh, the modern day but then again th- they switch to welcome fun as uh, they show what liberated 70s means. And uh, (laughs) because, uh, you know, as they established this drug being sort of sent out onto groups of test subjects, apparently this happy pill is so great that it leads to people organizing themselves into creating a sex cult. (laughs) Yeah, what else is it to do on the weekends? Come (laughs) on, man. I think this goofiness is good for... For the sort of color of the movie, it's all Westerners too. It's all Westerners in this sex cult, and they all. Uh, it's wonderfully goofy. It's it's obviously Hong Kong filmmakers here are not trying to be deadly serious, as you know they they show these uh, Guaylo actors chanting the pill, the pill, we want the pill. <laughs> And the director, Wong Fung, really likes to stay in this sequence and watch the moaning blonde and the suggesting, a suggestive filleting of ice cream that happens as well. <laughs> this is a long sequence, and I suppose um, exploitation in the early 70s was something they were not um, 
fear some of. So I, I, I think it's good fun for the movie, even though it's ludicrous. Uh, and you know, the sort of personal stakes that in, that involves George Lazenby's either lover or sister. You, you don't feel that it's part Maybe of the both. Goofy. I mean, it's a weird film. I don't know. Did you find that to be like, oh yeah, he, this is goofy fun. I can go on, get on with this. Or did you feel like this is embarrassing? For some reason, I, I, it starts out with a bang for sure. It's it's got some very bizarre moments, but I think that the thing that was a shame it just quickly shifts into cruise control. I think all that bizarre stuff is kind of near the beginning. It kind of blows its load quite early in terms of that, and then it kind of shifts into just you know quite monotonous cops and robbers stuff. Well, I say cops and robbers, it's more of a kind of a um, uh, like a kind of a, like a detective uh, espionage, story, yeah. yeah, kind of detective espionage. I mean, I think the influence of Enter the Dragon on both these films we're covering today cannot be underestimated from the kind of Lalo Schifrin-esque scores to the international espionage flavor they um, they both have uh, for certain. But no, getting back to what, what, what you were saying again, like it's, it, I, I think it just, it, it's good, like the kind of bizarre kind of weirdness to it, it adds a bit of kind of flavor. Um, but yeah, I thought, I thought the whole cult thing was going to be a big part of it, and then it just, it's just done, it's just over with, it's like over and done with. It's kind they, of like they get it all out in one sequence, it seems like, and uh, don't return to it, but, but they get a lot of material out of that sequence. Yeah. They're intercutting with the filleting of the ice cream or the lollipop. Uh, that's like okay we get it mr director but all right uh you're in the driver's seat so i suppose uh we, we should just deal with it <laughs> uh, but, but w- watching it for me uh you know having a fairly good time but also thinking that you know it represents a you know looking at the casting alone of george lazenby in a hong kong movie that for me but it might be very individual represents a cool unique historic transition to hong kong for george even though it's a career that didn't rise and rise and rise but it is to be noted even if it's not a quality movie that came out of this uh, choice to cost george and those aspects tom is something that i can fall back on and feel comfortable knowing of and then i can relax with the movie and watch it for what it is but not uh, not have a good time uh, sorry not not have a bad time because it's kind of cool uh, it's james bond is in a hong kong movie it's a little it's a little uh, cloud over the movie that hovers over it yeah it's, it's kind of cool george but he okay he speaks mandarin but fair enough, <laughs> fair enough. he studied he studied uh, chinese for your philosophy so i guess that's cool <laughs> oriental philosophy yeah uh, yeah, it, it's kind of more than that, I think, which is a good thing. I mean, it could just be they bang George into like you know a, a kind of very you know generic cell, but at least they do try kind of adding a little bit of kind of weirdness and and kind of I wouldn't say interesting plot, but at least a kind of a bit something different. They try at least with the film, and I mean, it doesn't particularly succeed. It, it does, as I say, it kind of gets a bit you know very average just falls into kind of average territory kind of as it as it as it goes on there's not really a lot interesting going on um as the film progresses unfortunately but it, you know at least it, it does try and there's kind of um there's some interesting stuff i think the whole drug thing it definitely gets uh, or it brings up some bizarre imagery and some bizarre moments but you know and towards the end of the film we get some you know some great sets and some some good action and stuff so yeah i think it, it's probably better than it has any right to be to be honest i mean thankfully you know because you know also that samo working at golden harvest at this time both as an actor and both as an action director 
I had confidence knowing where he was at this point in his career that he can probably get a little power out of Lazenby punching his way through the action uh, because uh, he's not here to do you know, kung fu. He's uh, here as a brawler, and uh, there's a stairwell fight that shows that decently. And uh, but but then the movie kind of impress impresses more in the subsequent uh, sequences, uh, and it's their bread and butter. I mean, the car chase that happens subsequently to this that isn't their bread and butter. They weren't in that game yet. Uh, yeah. Hong Kong cinema. They they found guys eventually in uh, the eighties primarily that could do car stuff uh, a lot better than they could. At what this was Blanky Co doing at this point? Was he was he about growing up or something <laughs> <laughs> or getting educated in the, the ways of uh, doing daredevil's dance uh, what have you but uh, him and bruce law were obviously profiles in the 80s that you can lean on for vehicular stunts but uh, no such things here but uh, watching george in the action i really like how both that he is constantly involved they don't have a guy with a silly wig on to represent george yeah he commits to 100 percent. like and throughout all of these hong kong films that he did you know and, and his and his bond stuff he always uh, his bond film he committed to 100 percent. you know he always wanted to do the stunts himself and the action himself and, he, and I really like how he, he reacts well. He rea- he he does um, he, he avoids uh, the hits very well and does brief, powerful takedowns. And it looks good. It's not clunky. It's not too slow. And while it's not a terrific amount of moves per shot, because Samuel clearly isn't designing it that way, but there's a fluidity and a clarity. And clearly, this is the Hong Kong style, not Samuel having to ado- um, adopt his style to a slow Westerner or anything like that. So... I, I was really impressed with uh, how George comes off and uh, the amount of moves that he uh, performs and the amount of action he uh, performs. And uh, that makes the movie obviously tick a little bit, uh, yeah. be, even if the narrative is, you know, a little... It is there, but it's not, not something uh, dynamic or or thrilling as, you know, the action happens and uh, George hits the CD places for for access and all of that. It's uh, It ticks along, but it's not... Uh, particularly like visually interesting uh, or anything yeah. and we haven't mentioned angela that much because they are separated for large amount of uh, the movie and uh, yeah. that that has its pros and cons i suppose because uh, I, I was missing some angela mao uh, power for the movie but i suppose uh, you know you, ha- you gotta make room for george too so 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 angela has her own little detective story going on and for me i enjoy her undercover role-playing adapting to, to situations playing helpless as she's investigating uh various aspects of uh of this uh drug business that uh, she, she wears a, a couple of uh not outfits but she plays different characters uh, throughout the movie but is a very cunning and sharp uh, taiwanese uh police woman following the and trail looks and all of that fantastic in a flat cap as well mm-hmm. she sure does so Just get that out there she rocks it hard you know, did did you have any thoughts on her particular part of the story before she meets uh, Lazenby? I'm sure you like Angela to an enough extent, having seen a couple of movies uh, with her. Yeah, as much as I, as much as I like Angela, her scenes, you know, in this film feel like they're from another film, and they, I think they slow proceedings down a, a tad. But I think obviously when you get to the end and the story's kind of hers and Lazenby's both finally come together, it's kind of you wish the whole film was like like that to be honest that's how i felt i felt like there was too much kind of there's too much of a gap between them and there's too much kind of 
uh, yeah, space between the two stories when they should have been a bit closer together. But again, you know, we did watch obviously the the Hong Kong cut for this, and at nearly two hours, it definitely feels a bit overlong. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's at one hundred almost ten. I think yeah. Yeah, which was a little bit more than expected, to be honest. Uh, so I think uh, maybe the shorter US cut would, would maybe work like a little little bit better, possibly. Yeah, uh, the, um, the, the title of that is wonderful. The US cut is called, uh, it's either A Man Called Stoner or Shrine of the Ultimate Bliss. I like that. I like that a lot. It sounds like a very hard movie, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Shrine of the Ultimate Bliss. That's some tough guy shit, that is. <laughs> exactly. Uh, do you feel it's... Um, feasible that to see uh, George uh, beat the crap out of Samuel in this movie feasible slash enjoyable it's a good yeah it's it's a good matchup I think you know I mean George has got the length but Samuel's got the width and he's running around with a sultana on his nose as well for some reason which is a cool a big old hairy nose mole <laughs> I just don't get it what's going on what is going on with that like, and, and why does Lazenby shave his moustache off about halfway through I don't Maybe to just enter the the last location, uh, it's completely unrecognizable. Jesus Christ, wearing the exact same clothes that they've seen him before with the exact same haircut and the exact he same He looks face. remarkably different without a mustache, <laughs> I'd have to say, though. <laughs> looks a bit more Bondian. Yeah. Sure. I mean, it, it's it's that... Uh, I, I do like, by the way, uh, Samuel's two fight scenes with George. Uh, they are a bit more boxing... Nice and scrappy. Uh, boxing yeah, matches scrappy. and scrappy, and Samuel reacts with gusto because he knows how to take the cinematic punch. It, it, it's kind of neat. It's not this forced thing forced thing where they got to make the, the leading man look good and Sam has to appear weak. It's kind of a neat little back and forth uh, with ferocity to it uh, that equals, uh, you know, that, that reminds me of the fact that Sam is allowed to put his power here on screen and, uh, and yeah. is using that distinct style via his... Uh, Australian lead here and it's kind of neat uh, I I I thought they in his three or four fight scenes that George has they, they don't go on repeat and lose um, like don't have any ideas they involve him and it feels uh, rather neat and fresh um, each and every time as uh, as he's a part of the finale as well you know and, and, and then he goes into that uh, Enter the Dragon slash James Bond style ending where it's all in an underground lair and uh, a colourful set and, for some reason, a continually spinning office desk. Yeah, I didn't quite understand that. There's one point when they... Ah, all, they... stop it, I'm getting dizzy. <laughs> they get to the, the main bad guys just going round and round for ages and they're just standing there like, what's going on? Like, Do we start fighting now? Or what's what's the situation here, dude? Whee! Whee! Yeah, yeah, I yeah, thought he was going to do weird. like a half turn and stop. That's what I thought. Yeah. Stop, but he just keeps going, just keeps going. He's like, check out the back of my hair. How good is that? I got that trimmed yesterday. Check that out, dude. So yeah, it's a bit, bit of a weird one. But your great sets at the back end, and I think, uh, I, I, like I was saying before, with the the choreography kind of being half and half, I think um, Samo and, and George uh, and their fight scene that's happening simultaneously with Angela Mao's and Wang Ying Tits. I think that Samo makes a wise decision of keeping their fight a bit more kind of scrappy, um, whereas Angela and and uh, Wang Ying is more kind of fluid and more, you know, a lot of kind of uh, choreography in terms of kind of jumps and kind of um, just kind of more complicated 
choreography on their end. So I think it, it's it's a good it's a good blend. I think it's a wise choice for kind of the talents and capabilities of each individual star um and, for and, certain. They're, and they're they're presumably a bit familiar with each other after having worked with a few on a few movies uh, together yeah, Angela have you done before this or afterwards the year before uh, i think yeah just slightly before and even when taekwondo strikes i think b- both of those are actually 73 yeah so um and, and golden harvest had been working with all of them for for a couple of years anyway so to see that fight scene appear as confidence and flu confident and fluid and involving fire and uh, more complexity is no yeah. surprise and it's uh, it's a welcome uh, w- welcome visual to uh, to a movie to to have them have separate fight scenes rather than put George in a situation where he needs to be as good as a Hong Kong performer is and then they sort of run into trouble because he isn't a kung fu guy so they, they wisely yeah. uh, they, they wisely design uh design it differently and uh, that's a you know you're right about the running time but for some reason it did you know as i settle into the movie I, I didn't find it had any you know disastrous like dull spots like a low way movie would have at that length uh, it kind of did its business efficiently and then it was over it felt more like a 90 minute movie but i i do recognize that there, there is some editing especially in the first half i think as those clunky sections as george is the tough cop that that didn't mm. work for me it looked uh really uh it lacked in confidence those uh cop yeah. beats and then the hong kong crew got to do more of uh, what they do and that serves the movie better yeah i agree definitely i think there is like there's almost kind of a uncertainty with those sequences and obviously as it gets to the the kind of final reel you know it gets to kind of what what golden harvest do best and there's a real kind of confidence in in the last like half hour or so so yeah i think it's i think it would have been it would have benefited from having you know, Lazenby and Angela Mao's characters' uh, story running a bit more kind of cohesively together because they, they 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 work great together on screen. They look great together and they you know kick ass together in, in the final. So it's um it's a shame there wasn't kind of more of that. Very much agree. Uh, it uh, would have been nice to have them um, paired up, and uh, the the language differences wouldn't have been a problem because they treat this as we said as a, they they treat George as a character who knows Mandarin, and obviously it's a post dub movie, so that wouldn't have been the issue of uh, do you understand the words are coming out of my mouth? I would have liked to have seen that. That would have been pretty good. Shit, it's not. It's it's not Eddie Coe in this. I thought it was Eddie Coe as the inspector. It's not. It's uh, Hung Sing Chung. Whoops. I think I'm getting, I'm losing my sight in my old age. <laughs> well, they aren't, they aren't dissimilar in look. Yeah, I wasn't familiar with the actor, but looking at stills, he has a an intense intensity in his eyes that could be akin to Eddie Coe's. I don't blame you for that, actually. Uh, the bad guy, by the way, is Japanese, apparently. Takagi Joji. Uh, and he, he did uh, one Hong Kong movie and uh, presumably a, a lot more in Japan. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't have cast him, I think, yeah. I think I like some some people in the cast are actually um, they're listed as temple addict, which I like. It's like they're addicted <laughs> to the temple. But I just can't get enough of the temple, dude. Happy temple, oh, so good. <laughs> yeah, so so spot your favorite stuntman as well. Uh, yeah, Yumbu apparently I didn't spot didn't him, but see, obviously yeah, didn't see him. He's in there uh, somewhere. Um, there's loads, man, absolutely loads. So yeah, it's a nice little kind of game you can play if you get a bit bored. Which comes back to the point that, uh, as with uh, many Golden Harvest movies, it is that feeling of uh, they're all they're all there, 
like the crew, the fam. The you know, crew. they're all here. <laughs> Yo, the fam, the whole fam are here. Exactly, a good chunk of Hong Kong uh, cinema talents all present History, here. History, right here. Yeah. Exactly, including uh, Eric Zhang uh, jumping around in the background and trying to punch or kick uh, George uh, once or twice. Yeah, <laughs> he's getting him in. But uh, I, I don't have any other notes. Uh, I mean. Watch it if you're curious. Like, if you're curious about that, if you get that feeling, like George Lazenby in a Hong Kong movie, that sounds wild. Well, it isn't, but it's kind of it's kind of neat. If you're into trivia, if you're into movie history, if you're into what happened during a career like his, he went to Hong Kong and made a movie. Then, then watch it for for heaven's sake, because it is an easy, harmless watch, but not a um, classic uh, akin to what Golden Harvest did. And I think that comes down to the fact that modern day weren't their bread and butter period you know korea versus japan uh, hong kong versus japan they did really well they knew that shit in and out and uh but they you know kudos for changing structure changing formula and breaking out of that and trying different things so obviously you need to do that as a, as a studio to see what the market and how the market responds and although we have no uh, numbers on this i believe it didn't play for many days in uh, 1974 like 10 or 20 days or something so a week probably yeah. max yeah, you're out that was the norm you know they, they had they had shore brothers to uh to battle with so they have to put something against in and out man yeah yeah as much as they can of course but um course. i i have uh at any rate no other notes so uh do you want to say anything else about stoner you sum that up very well ken i'm in agreement and also well done just throwing, throwing that out there well uh, done to you <laughs> I tip my hat to you, sir. I tip my flat hat, flat <laughs> exactly. cap to you. Um, yeah, like like a lot of early seventies Golden Harvest flicks, I get a real spaghetti western vibe from the titles and the uh, the theme song uh, for certain. Maybe because it is actually from a spaghetti western. Who who knows? Even if it's not a high profile one, probably yeah, probably stolen from uh, Morricone somewhere. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know really how much um, credence there is in obviously the original plan for the film, supposedly featuring Bruce Lee, Lazenby, and Sonny Chiba. I don't quite know. I mean, that's that's kind of the the the, the famous fact about this film, or the the trivia about this fact. This film, I have no idea whether any of that's true, or there's nothing really. There's no interviews or anything I could find citing that as a fact. So, well, well it didn't turn up, and if if that was the fact, I think it was preliminary discussions only yeah. probably rather than the production being in full pre-planning mode you know what i mean so yeah, uh, i'm sure discussions were had i mean for heaven's sake they did cost someone japanese so maybe you know we're gonna reactivate this but we can't get chiba so who can we get can we get someone from his action school or if he had his action school going at that point who knows what the sad sad thinking that if it you know if that is there is some you know truth in that it's sad thinking that it would have been obviously a really amazing collaboration but we don't get a bad film out of it uh didn't get a bad film out of it eventually anyway so that's cool i gotta say baiting pay coming in with that 70s david bowie hair swag i mean maybe on a complete side note but i've never understood the kind of sexy leading lady appeal of betty she just always looks like a dinner lady to me <laughs> in every film she's in not saying dinner ladies aren't hot but i'd rather take you know an angela or a nora mao over her any day of the week yeah, she's uh, she's the sexual allure of this uh, picture, Betty Tingpei. So uh... don't quite get it, to be honest. <laughs> um, but yeah, that as, as the one last note, that fumble in the dark scene in the temple was kind of bad. 
it's supposed to be pitch black and it was like you oh, know what i think uh, is that this particular transfer in in the case of that scene i don't think it's properly timed it's supposed to be a little bit darker but they're fumbling in the dark in a brightly lit room <laughs> as the uh, uh george and angela as they uh, actually meet for the first time but i think this particular transfer as natural as it looks i think that scene is supposed to be tinted a little bit darker because Angela's, I didn't know, no, I didn't know at first what was going on. Angela's just feeling out for a door that's right in front of her, and I was like, "Is this kind of invisible, you know, invisible door, invisible trigger situation going on here?" And then George starts starts doing it, and they start bumping into oh, each other without stupid. knowing. And I'm just like, "These these two idiots, these two knuckleheads, what are they doing? <laughs> what are they doing? The lights are on." Uh, so yeah, that was a bit weird, but um, no, that is it. That is that sums up my opinions on Stone, Stoner. That's how, you, that's how you're supposed to say Shrine it, yeah. of Ultimate Bliss, which is not a good title for an action piece, but whatever. <laughs> uh, so as for availability, Stoner was issued in Hong Kong uh, on DVD by Joy Sales as part of their legendary collection. It was quite a decent-looking budget title, uh, but not remastered as such. Uh, uh, but do note, it's uh, almost all in Mandarin, including uh, George Lazenby's uh, scenes. Uh, it's, it's now out of print and a bit elusive and expensive if you do uh, pick it up uh, as these... Uh, titles tend to be and again under the title the shrine of ultimate bliss you can watch it on youtube english dubbed but it does it doesn't have sync sound dialogue from lazenby and it doesn't look like the lip sync is that accurate or great even when it's dubbed in english so so it's not like all of a sudden you get ah oh, we can definitely see that uh, what we're hearing is what george said on the set you know yeah but there is a bit more darkness so it might be a bit more believable for you yeah, the entire fucking print is pitch black, so that scene would work marvelous. But the the version on YouTube does not look good. It's pretty uh, pretty dire looking. But um, if you do want to watch it in English, uh, it is there. It's probably cropped as well, so you you won't get it in full widescreen uh, on um, on YouTube. I probably would have watched it if if it had a little bit more um, sync to the. Uh, the English dialogue. Oh, cool, cool. He, he's sort of he's speaking English. Uh, we we can see his lines uh, properly, but no, uh, it seems like random English dialogue on top of George's performance, and it's not him either uh, dubbing himself. No, I was close for years to watching it, but glad I kind of waited to see um, a better better cut, the longer cut as well um, in terms of quality. Uh, so we're gonna take a musical break and uh, listen to the uh, the theme 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 from chat 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 chat. Uh, the musical stylings of the movie Shatter and um, it's uh, coming up after the break so sit tight and we'll be right back And welcome back in the second review of this uh, Versus episode. Uh, two movies with, with a Western lead. Um, it's uh, arrived here after you've listened to some splendid music from Shatter from 1974, although 1975 was its American release, apparently. Uh, so um, its production year is 74, but you find 75 in some places. But the plot from IMDb goes as follows. Shatter, played by Stuart Whitman, an international hitman, is hiding out in Hong Kong after he has completed a contract 
uh, out uh, on an African leader. Shatter soon finds out that everyone wants him dead, including the crime syndicate, the cops, and the brother of the African leader he killed. Shatter teams up with Kung Fu expert Tai Pa, played by T. Long, to try and get the money that is owed to him. Various double crosses and fight scenes ensue. So Shatter, aka Call Me Mr. Shatter, also they call me Mr. Shatter. It was the second co-production between England's Hammer Studios and Hong Kong's Shaw Brothers. The first one was The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, which sort of Mm. played to each studio's strength, making an old school Kung Fu movie and a a Hammer Horror movie uh, involving Dracula, although Christopher Lee did not play uh, Dracula by, by that point he was out. Um, so what Shatter did, it paired up American actor Stuart Whitman. Peter Cushing appears in, in a guest role, I suppose, and that would be his last film uh, for Hammer. So Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires would presumably be his last Van Helsing, Van Helsing performance. And um, this uh, role uh, in Shatter was his last film for, for the studio. And uh, Tilong and Lily Lee are cast from the Hong Kong side of things, uh, both Shaw Brothers players uh, at that point. And... Uh, T.T. Long, I think, was fresh off his uh, award-winning role in Blood Brothers uh, the year before. Yeah, so, man. So he was into the chunk chair swing of things, I suppose. Uh, so the project was on the cards to start um, production, I think, earlier since Hammer's uh, Michael Carreras, which is the film's credited director. But the director, Monty Hellman, started filming but was fired a few weeks into shooting. Uh, more, more on that. But prior, uh, Hammer had Canadian co-financing and it was going to go ahead under the title Shoot. But that financing fell through. But uh, through Hammer's meeting with meetings with Shaw Brothers, uh, that, that's you know they, they started to set up the first co-production. But the unfilmed script for Shoot was developed into Shatter with uh, Shaw Brothers. And uh, on stepping in as director, um, Michael Carreras said he had concern about the lack of excitement in the action scenes and the dialogue scenes, and in and in his words. Hong Kong looks like a slum. I just don't know how to salvage it. Uh, there's two perspectives here. You know, the producer and the original director ha- has had their say throughout the years. Uh, Shatter was released in 1975, although made in 73 um, or 74, in the United States as uh, Call Him, Mr. Shatter. And the VHS release ex- expanded the title to They Call Him, Mr. Shatter. But it didn't get a UK release until 1977. And if my memory is correct, uh, The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires also had a delayed release either for the US or the UK, uh, despite it being made in 1974. Before reviews came in, there were plans that they believed in this for some reason. <laughs> they, believe, they, they were planning to uh, expand the movie into a Shatter TV series with Stuart Whit- Whitman, but that didn't come to fruition because this movie flopped badly. And uh, reviews as uh, such as the one from Variety called it dull and sloppy, but they did single out the action choreography to a degree, so Shaw Brothers got a bit of a thumbs up. Uh, Michael Carreras further elaborated uh, on the film in the wake of the finishing this troubled production, and he said it was unfortunately a bad picture, no question about it. We ran into all sorts of problems, and it was badly conceived from the start. Uh, One did all sorts of things to try and save it, but it didn't work. But, um, you know, the original director, you'd want uh, him to have his say, and he he did, because uh, he did the um, 2000-2001 Anchor Bay DVD audio commentary, uh, Monty Hellman. So I I took some pieces from the DVD audio commentary he did, because um, even though it's a little bit slow going as a discussion, there are some details worthy of uh, 
to share. And in the opening sequence where Shatter assassinates the African leader, that was one of the first sort of disagreements as he disagreed with Michael Carreras on whether the uh, actor in this case, the black actor, should have his shirt on or off. Um, and, you know, so it starts right there. And it seemed like a daily thing between the two, the director and producer. And I believe Monty said that uh, when I'm on a project, I I tend to uh, share my opinion. Uh, I'm not this um, happy boy just doing the work. I, I have my own voice and I want to share that opinion. So, you know, two sort of alpha males uh, disagreeing from day one, I suppose. Uh, he, he was let go from the film. Michael Carreras took over as creditor and he is the sole credited director. Monty was offered to edit the film, but he declined because he knew this was an unpleasant situation. And I think he had a feeling that... Uh, we haven't shot, I haven't shot anything good. And I don't think anything good is going to come out of this. So what can editing do yeah, to this situation? <laughs> yeah, Monty had suggestions for the script, but uh, he felt like no one really listened to him. Uh, so, you know, creative differences within the production, mainly with Michael Carreras, ended up with him being uh, let go. One of the issues was that uh, the Shaw Brothers obviously provided uh, the crew as well. They, they shared a crew shelter with two other productions at Shaw Brothers, with them working around the clock in eight-hour shifts. So the 8 a.m. start for Shatter usually ended up being noon because the crew was exhausted. And that meant the production you know, lost four hours and Hellman was only working half a day. So that gets the attention of the producer and Michael Carreras took over. So I think he was, you know... We have two perspectives, but he does sound, you know, he doesn't sound whiny or bitchy. So it, it, it does sound real that he was dealt this uh, bad hand, losing four hours on a couple of days yeah. or several days when you should have worked. Of course you're not going to get any work done or any good work done if, if the crew is just pushed to exhaustion by Shaw Brothers, mind you, not, not necessarily Hammer. Just a lot of bad stuff going on for the film, like in its kind of initial steps, you know, towards being made, and that's always kind of a, a bad thing. I mean, off to a bad start, really. Yeah, for sure. Um, if you watch the movie, the, the first stretches of the film, the assassination and so forth, arriving in Hong Kong, that's Monty Hellman's uh, footage, uh, and he's not particularly proud of it as it's assembled now. So he's, it's not like he felt like, I shot gold and then they fired me. No. It was really not not any good. He worked with Roger Corman prior, and he was used to being in a more producer-director capacity, working for Roger Corman. And the lack of control and the co-production mess created, in his uh, words, a bad situation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Stuart Whitman is on the commentary as well, um, uh, separately recorded. He happily admits that um, he looks hungover in the Lieber confrontation (laughs) when he he wants his money. He says, well, that's a guy who had a bit too much fun the day before the night before so <laughs> and again monte hellman doesn't sound bitter as such it's just matter of fact and frank that uh, this cash in on the kung fu trend uh, wasn't well conceived uh, the kung fu was more patched on rather than an integral part of the story and in his own words uh, th- this was too short of a script and that makes the movie slow since a lot is stretched out yeah, yeah. and and uh, yes that's 100 percent true yeah um stuart whitman uh, reacted a little bit uh, to finding out the conditions um of uh, the shore brothers studio and how run run shore ran his studio he says that um the the crew the actors they 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 had to eat at this disgusting restaurant and uh, he got a sense that the actors while pleased to be contract players they kind of knew 
nothing else really they only knew mm. this uh, and the conditions kind of at like slave conditions living on the land and such that was his uh, uh, perspective Whitman also protested Hellman's firing by going on a sit-down strike uh, for three days uh, before they resumed production uh, and then he says something completely outrageous on the commentary he suggests that Shaw Brothers arranged for a gas leak in an actor's apartment because he was mouthing off and showed displeasure and that was like nice story mind backing that up with some facts <laughs> he just says it casually like, he says on the commentary I bet people don't like to hear this like well tell that story then you started your story tell your story so who knows? Kent's triggered. <laughs> Calm down, Kent. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but it's uh, such a dumb thing to say. Like, well, a lot of people say, a lot of people say. Yeah. Geez. He seems a bitter about the whole thing, to be honest. And from what I've, I've read, he was he was ill during during that period uh, of his career. Um, I, I don't quite know whether that's that's true or not, but he just seems grumpy throughout the, the whole film. He's just like. A little bit bored. <laughs> yeah, know. just forget about this. So what am I? What am I doing here? So yeah, really kind of you can feel that uh, watching it for sure. And in the end, I think Helman summarizes that it feels like about two thirds of his footage is in there, and the rest is uh, you know action padding and things like that. So a fair amount they ended up in the edit, um, even though uh, Carreras got full credit but i don't think monty hellman was too bitter about not getting credit for um, for this because he wasn't that pleased with the what he shot what was assembled and the conditions and blah 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 so a, a trouble production resulted in a good film not at all i mean it's you you list the things like Stuart whitman from the longest day t long lily lee in the same movie that's cool now make something happen no <laughs> okay it's a, it's a pretty terrible film to be honest uh, that's my short opinion uh, for now so let's uh, add some details of the you share your short opinion of Shatter I you know nothing groundbreaking here as you said but you know uh, for me just a, a fun swift kind of 90 minutes of the 70s goodness really I mean again it, it moves fast enough for me to kind of overlook the fact that it's you know a bit kind of tedious in terms of you know the, the story uh moving from point a to point b but i think it, you know it, there's, there's something going on the screen most of the time there's like explosions and fights and and the, the dialogue is kind of terrible and does i think the acting in general is, is a bit kind of off but um mostly down to kind of you know whitman unfortunately being kind of so just aggressively kind of just passively passively aggressive throughout the whole I don't know if he's trying to look tough or he's simply um, on autopilot um, but he doesn't come off as this uh, threatening tough guy or anything it's uh, it's not good but uh, but yeah I, I, I didn't have as much of a problem as as I think uh, as, as you did Ken it kind of moved fairly fairly decently for me but nothing nothing special I like that it exists as a meeting of um companies and meeting of acting worlds uh that's why it's an, kind of an easy watch too like uh, yeah they're yeah. in it together but the, what they did was um you know no not particularly good at all uh, and i don't know either how hammer fed working modern genres because the little i know of hammer is that um they found horror that was what they what their name brand was built on i suppose yeah. Uh, yeah. and and i don't know if 
at all actually so please listen and see if you know please educate me if hammer had dealt in modern action and had done well or if this was an early attempt and like with stoner an attempt that felt a little bit um, out of place out of character and they're not sure of themselves working a um, an international thriller as it is because it goes to i guess an unnamed african nation um in the beginning of the film and then it's hong kong so it's an international thriller but uh, that's why legend of the seven golden vampires works so much better for me uh, as that is you know the hammer brand and the shaw brothers brand coming together and it's great uh, to see david chang and peter cushing acting english together and to see the sort of lao galang style kung fu mixed with uh, you know, vampires and Dracula, superb fun. Really love Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. So uh, this is, um, not to compare it, but it, it's certainly out of the co-productions. That's the one that um, remains uh, more uh, favorable in my eyes. Uh, I mean, I mean, how familiar are you with Hammer? Uh, as such, have you watched all the Dracula films? Or? Yeah, they're a big, they're a big part. I mean, again, big, big British studio, so they're kind of you know hard to avoid if you if you kind of live <laughs> over here, uh, to be honest. But you know, uh, kind of not answering, but kind of having a comment on your earlier uh, regarding your earlier comment. I mean, they did you know a lot of stuff. They did noirs and they did. Um, just straight up kind of dramas and uh, did a lot of stuff early on in the career, but I'm I'm kind of fairly certain that this wasn't something that they specialised in. Really, this kind of modern day, you know, crime kind of espionage films. I think this was really the the one stab in the dark at it. Um, to be honest, again, like you said, at this at this time, it was all about you know Dracula and the kind of the uh, the boobs uh, the boobs and blood uh, kind of combination that that they were famous for uh, at this point. I mean, this does push for gory violence to a degree because that opening assassination is pretty damn uh, violent with uh, headshots and uh, gunshot, wound, gunshot wounds on on, uh, on on the body of the African leader. Shatter kills with his camera. He's got a gun in his camera. So uh, that's uh, and and then you you know you're led into sort of seventies feel because uh, I'm sure that they came up with this idea on their own when crafting the score let's put the name of the character in the score no one has ever done that before in the 70s right <laughs> so it's uh you hear the song as he enters hong kong shatter 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 you know not at all inspired by something else shaft <laughs> it's definitely yeah there's definitely a shaft vibe to the uh, the whole proceedings uh, for sure. I mean, if not Shaft, they're very, very much kind of Enter the Dragon uh, as well. Like a, like I previously mentioned on Stoner, there's definitely those kind of type of vibes there. And, you know, it kind of works. I mean, it's kind of 70s kind of, you know, cheese. There's a lot of interesting, you know, fashion choices and soundtrack choices. And, you know, I think that that keeps it going for me, uh, you know, and the action and just, you know, seeing kind of T-Lung in action as well. I mean, I think everything else is, you know, no gray shades, really. No, I mean, I mean, it really struggles in the beginning of the film, I think, as he arrives in Hong Kong. Uh, again, Whitman looks bored, whether he was trying to look tough and hard. It looks completely bored. There's, uh, you know, an awfully quiet taxi ride, an awfully quiet process of getting a, a room, um, you know, preparing another hitman job. Which pays off, though. <laughs> it, it does pay off in a great way, one of the few highlights. Yeah. Uh, and uh, not terribly involving dialogue uh, back and forth as uh, Stuart Whitman and Anton differing as uh, Lieber, the banker, talk. You know, trying to get his 
money. And I mean, I think Whitman is both, he's both hungover, as he said. He's also getting some particularly bad dialogue that, that he, and he's left on his own island to try and deliver. Like, you're gonna pay me labor and it's gonna be more than a lousy $100,000. Yeah, it's pretty rough, isn't it? It's pretty like, rough. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine doing that hungover as well. Oh boy, I was in the longest day. Jeez. I mean, I know, I mean, again, Stuart Whitman, he, he'd been, uh, you know, in, in, in big films. I think he, he pretty much said during the 70s and 80s was doing a lot of a lot of TV. Um, and I mean, I, I don't I mean, I don't know whether, you know, you, your acting has got to be a bit different. I'm, I'm assuming it is. You, you kind of play things a certain way for TV and play things uh, another way for films. But I don't know whether that kind of comes into it. It's just that maybe he's miserable <laughs> being there. Well, he wanted to see Hong Kong. He admits that, that uh, this was a chance to see Hong Kong. It's all on location in Hong Kong. They don't switch to the Hammer Studios back in England or anything like that. So obviously they flew in Peter Cushing too. And Cushing, you know, he can respectfully sell even the most basic of dialogue. He's got a calm about him and a dignity as a performer anyway. So he can do no wrong, even if it's not great shakes in the script department here. And, uh, you know, even in The Seven Golden Vampires, uh, he's he's done Van Helsing a lot. But he, he knows that in and out. He knows what to project. And even in this limited role, I think uh, it's pretty, pretty, pretty decent. Even the lengthy exposition dump later in the film. To, to, hand, to hand out to Peter Cushing, you know, well, I'll listen to this. Definitely. He seems to know what he's talking about. He does, yeah, he does good. Again, that's one, uh, you know, one kind of redeeming factor of the film is that he's great in it. But yeah, I just think any any of the dialogue involved in, I mean, I think that scene's probably good because uh, Cushing's kind of left to just, you know, monologue it almost. I think any dialogue involving Whitman is just, it's just not really, you know, animated enough, kind of in a good way. It just mm-hmm. seems very lethargic and kind of, uh, not enough snap snap to it I don't think and I think for this type of character it needs a bit more kind of snap because it's, it's a leading man and I think you want to be invested in what's going on but you just there's, there's no real kind of you know investment there to be honest I do like how Teelung asked him at one point um, he's like he sees the gun and he's like you know you any good with that gun and he's like yeah and then the next scene or maybe the scene after that he misses like seven shots trying to get the one guy and it gets him <laughs> on like the last one are you lying? Are you, are you lying or pissed, dude? Like, it's like Lego. Ba- it's like Lego Batman. Uh, Batman, like pow, 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 and then hits the thing first try. <laughs> uh, what do you think? Uh, you're watching, you know, street level Hong Kong of the period, even though it's not shot that great. It's a, it's a bit grimy. It's attempting to be a bit gritty. I mean, is it any fun to watch Hong Kong of uh, 1973 uh, going on around them? Yeah, I think, but you know, both these films are covering. They've got nice locations, and they're they're kind of interesting you know for that reason alone for like some of the kind of locales and, and the places they visit but yeah it's good i like seeing that part of um that part of hong kong definitely marketplaces and restaurants and massage parlors yeah it's, it's awesome like seeing that, that that kind of side of it so again that's another redeeming factor i'm really trying to polish this turd and i can no no, no 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 i very much agree i mean there, there are points of interest but i think it, it kind of dies uh, you know dies for me in other sections i mean at, at points it's really really fun uh b- before t long and lily Lee properly enters there is a uh a payoff as you said shatter switches the room he's given 302 but he switches the key with uh, the couple going into uh, 301 so he gets uh, their room instead and for some reason uh, the people that are off the shatter 
they, uh, they go with subtle route of firing a rocket into his supposed hotel room <laughs> yeah. and killing civilians in the process. That was awesome. I was laughing a lot. I was expecting like maybe a sniper rifle or something, but a rocket <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I was like, if you gotta do it, you gotta do it. <laughs> And it's a pretty decent, uh, you know, explosion, and you see the man uh, uh, thrown through the door, and uh, then uh, you know the hotel is uh, hotel is shattered, uh, shattered, <laughs> uh, ruined. Uh, so, but when the acting worlds collide, that's probably the best enjoyment, I think, as we see T Long and Lily Lee and Stuart Whitman interact. She, uh, they say on the commentary she wasn't that comfortable with English, so her phonetic delivery, which sounded... I was a bit unsure if it was sync sound or not for her, but regardless, she, she apparently delivered it phonetically, so I don't blame that because she's obviously cast, and it does sound good for probably a short casting process. It was not like, you get six months of English lessons from us. No, you're at Shaw Brothers, you work at two or three movies at the same time, including the one in English. But the the thing is, um, well, they're nice to see here. It's lovely to see her. They attempt to shoe he- horn in a romance between her and Stuart Whitman, which is kind of creepy, because if I could uh, calculate it correctly, he was 46, she was 24. He's an old 46, I'll tell you. Like, is he like 55 in this movie? Because he, he looks, uh, he looks uh, like he's lived a life. Stop it, Ken. He's dead, man. Stop. <laughs> like, st- let him rest. Let Stuart Whitman but rest. But I think is uh, enjoyable to watch. He, um, I, I know, I've seen him speak English in later interviews. I think he simply was fa- fairly comfortable speaking English. Yeah, and their back and forth sounds uh, fairly um, natural when he acts with uh, Stuart Whitman, Whitman in English, and uh, the kung fu they said was like added, and it was not integral to the story. I still felt that yeah, Shaw Brothers are gonna get to showcase their stuff through the casting and through the stuff they do well. So that was not a surprise that it was going to feature Kung Fu. It simply, it would have been dumb if they had Stuart Whitman do, you know, Snake and Crane or whatever. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Obviously, he plays to his, his strengths, which I like with, with both these films, what we were saying. I kind of, you know, they leave the, the kind of more intricate kung fu to the kung fu players and, and, and let the kind of uh, the leads kind of just just stick with kind of what, what, what they're good at, really, which I think was a good idea. I did I did think some of the action, especially the strange scene in like, the, you know, it looks like a restaurant, but I don't know whether they were doing the choreography really slow or whether it was slowed down. I couldn't quite tell, but for some reason it's like really, really slow. They, they mix it with uh, slow motion that didn't seem to come from whoever was the designated action director. To me, Very some of it choice. looked like uh, the Shaw Brothers crew was controlling the flow and shot choices of the choreography. Some of it looked like the Hammer crew were trying to put their spin on it by employing slow motion, and it, it didn't feel like the Shaw Brothers style through and through. Mm. But the scene in itself, which is a strange tournament scene in a restaurant uh, with T-Long. <laughs> That's and... where I host all my tournaments. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, he, it looks good on him. There's fair ferocity here and uh, his takedown of the various opponents are all uh, competent, competent stuff. Just uh, let down a little bit by, I think, uh, interference into the style by hammer I'm, I'm going by gut feeling because I, I i i didn't recognize some of the flow here 
No, just a, just a strange, strange stylistic choice to have it because it, it didn't. I didn't. It didn't clock clock. I didn't clock onto whether it was slow motion or whether it was just the choreography was really slow. It was really odd. It was slow because it, it didn't. It didn't seem slow enough to be dramatic. It was more kind of played. The whole thing was slow. It was kind of it, odd. It, I think it's a few frames off rather than the the amount of frames that we're used to in slow motion. So, so I think it's like that's why i think you you reacted to what's i don't know what is this is it a bit slower yeah. or are they do, doing something with the camera speed so in regards to my theory i think uh, carreras and hammer were dictating a little bit about how kung fu should look uh, here what do you think um they, they use uh stuart whitman for some some brawling um it's a bit fragmented but he said he trained a little bit for the role, but then again, he's a, he's also older, so they can't throw him into a big old five ten minute brawl. So, how do you think they they use him for the limited stuff that they they give him? He handles himself well. Yeah, I think he's again they, they put him in action that's quite suited to him. I mean, hey, how he lets you know T Lung do all the work at the end when he's actually holding a gun. So like, come on, man, just you know, put him out of his misery. He's working his ass off here. <laughs> but I mean, he's so terrible with the gun. He might have, you know, missed every single, <laughs> every single person T-Lung was fighting. Shot T-Lung instead. Uh, but yeah, he, he does well. He does well in kind of. I think they 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 put him in action scenes that that suit his kind of physical prowess very well. I think he said he was. Um, he trained a little bit and then. Um... Uh, cracked his ribs to an extent before the production so he was uh, not as uh, mobile and agile as perhaps he uh, would have liked to be uh, but yeah. uh, there's still you know a brawling kind of uh, fight persona is not a bad thing here and it looks kind of cool in uh, those uh, scenes uh, uh, where they chose to apply that um, the brutality and unexpected depths of some main characters is certainly not earned but at least something's happening at least there's some groovy, more groovy headshots. Um, uh, there's one character get, that gets shot through uh, his straw hat, for instance. So they got a gnarly yeah. little backhead explosion out of the straw hat with, with with blood as well. Looks very cool. Guns mixed with you know Tilong's uh, Tilong, uh, you know, with with his weapon of choice being kung fu, but also using things in the environment in that beach scene and uh, with hooks going through bodies and things like that there's some good ferocious stuff from Tilong at the end you know and some speedy back and forth as it goes from opponent to opponent in scenes that definitely felt like this is the Shaw Brothers action director working um, working uh, here and I, I, I don't know actually who did uh, who was assigned because it didn't really turn up in the credits and it's not on Hong Kong Movie Database either who was the Shaw Brothers action director for this whether you know because I don't know if they got Lao Ga Long to do this or Tong Gai or well Lao Ga Long does show up at the end doesn't he so I'm assuming that it it probably is him because he shows up in the final brawl I'm assuming yeah I spotted Lao Ga Wing I believe yeah so no no you you are correct yeah Lao Ga Wing so maybe it was him because he he was always an action director by this point he had directed uh, action director King Boxer Five Fingers of Death so they might they might have got the Lao Ga Wing. Uh, uh, if we had spotted Yun Woping or Yun Ching Yan, for instance, then you you then it might have been them. But but I didn't spot them uh, personally. So uh, for now, that's a, a guess and uh, all of that. So yeah, I, I think I think it's it could have been any one of those that you you mentioned. To be honest, it's got that kind of stylistic uh, profile, definitely. 
is the added sort of gory violence appealing at all to you as they as it reemerges in the picture? Do, do, do you think it springs to life, or is it kind of too gross for this movie to have this much brutality? It, it's it's cool, but I can see why they cut it out. I think it probably doesn't quite fit with the the rest of the tone of the film. But again, it's it's a Hammer film, so I'm I'm assuming that they wanted to add a you know a sprinkle of gore in there for the gore hounds. Um, you know, they've been following their stuff up to that point. I, I suppose it might have been a bit of a selling point, it being a bit gory um, as well. You know, rather than kind of it, it being, uh, you know, the, the way it's presented in the um, is the the US cut or the the, the UK cut. Well, well, I remember the US DVD was uh, less violent, and then later we we, we got uh, the slightly extended one with uh, inserted pieces of uh, violence, as I'll talk of in a bit. Uh, um, so it's uh, it has turned up more unrated, uh, but uh, the elements are not as sharp as the main feature. Yeah, yeah. So I think in in that respect, it probably it, it, I could take or leave it to be honest. I think it probably fits. Um... It probably would sell more, kind of obviously, to 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 to, to the gorehounds with a little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, extra footage in there. But I think it, you know, it works without it, you know, okay as well. I mean, it's 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 almost like yeah, it's kind of cool, but it's also uh, come back to that thing of uh, something happened. Great, <laughs> thank <Yeah>. you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, it, it is. It seems uh, Rob out of character with the movie to be that. Uh, gory so um, um i'm not surprised either that uh, the censors wanted uh, to tone this down somewhat yes it was cut for the the u.s dvd well maybe the theatrical cut i'm assuming then possibly yeah maybe. yeah maybe so because uh the inserts are from a lesser print uh, on the version we watched uh, i don't know now with the blu-ray if they found a complete print with even quality elements because i'm uh, I, I don't have the blu-ray uh, i only have the dvd uh, but it really is the end of my notes. So I want to say anything else about uh, any action from T-Long, any uh, love scenes involving Lily Lee? <laughs> uh, I wanted to say that, did you know that Godfrey Ho did uh, second unit direction on this? I wouldn't be surprised. I think he was around uh, Shaw Brothers at the time. He he, he was around chang and the like. So, um, yeah, because I spotted a Jeffrey or Joffrey Ho in the credits. Yeah, I think he says, yeah, it says, he's listed as Jeffrey Ho in the credits. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, from I what... I wouldn't be surprised. Um, he, he, he was around working uh, working his way up, up the industry. Yeah, from what I can, I can see, he's listed on um, a lot of different websites as, as uh, yeah, um, co-directing. So, it's his uh, fault. Well, he's sorry, doing, doing second unit direction at least. Yes, Godfrey, come on, man. Could have added a little bit more boobies in there, something just for us. Little little sprinkle there, dude. A, a, a final note, by the way, Yen Shi Quan from Once Upon a Time in China playing Iron, uh, Iron Robe Yim and he's in um, Iron Monkey. He can be seen as one of Ratwood's thugs, Peter Cushing's thugs. And uh, you got uh, Fung Hak On turning up here in yeah, the fight scenes. Yeah, that's the only person I, I spotted this time around uh, in the fight scenes in terms of the, uh, the, the players. Uh, but uh, otherwise, um, uh, don't have any other notes. As I said, I, I'm happy that this exists as a meeting of worlds. As I've said many times, I don't dislike that fact that uh, this was made. And you never know, going into a movie, what's going to happen. I don't argue that this was necessarily ill-conceived. I think that there could have been some cool mixture of kung fu, international intrigue and violence. But um, it really did not pan out. And uh, troubled productions usually don't result in a glowing masterpiece necessarily it's going to t- take a lot for a troubled production to sort of regain its composure and deliver excellency you know 
Yeah, no, and, and, and this one sounded like a constant battle, and uh, then they just wanted to finish it and get out. Yeah, constant battle, and I think you can kind of that that does translate to to the screen a little bit, unfortunately. Um, but again, I, I don't think it's a terrible film. I think it's 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 quite fun. It's got enough elements to at least make a you know passable kind of breezy ninety minutes. But um, but yeah, I don't think. Sure, Whitman was going to win any Oscars for this one, unfortunately. Um, but T. T. Lung wears some cool jackets, so there's and, that. And we hear him in sync sound, uh, definitely. Yeah, that, that is his voice, and he he confidently handled English. I think. Um, he reminds me of Jet Li the way he speaks English. So, you know, very very similar. Yeah, you know, it pro- probably picked him because they knew that, but also he, he was a generally you know leading man and uh, someone who could generate box office at this time with uh, having worked with uh, Chang Chia for so many movies and having won uh, his acting award for Blood Brothers. So, And if you know who did action choreography, just send your answer on um, a postcard to Podcast on Fire headquarters somewhere in Sweden. If it worked in Harry Potter, it works that way too, like under the stairs. And the, and the letters got to Harry Potter, <laughs> as I'm rereading Harry Potter currently. So I... <laughs> no, I know. H- happy to listen to Stephen Fry read Harry Potter, which, which is what I'm doing. As for availability of Shatter, it had an Anchor Bay Region One DVD release uh, very early on in the DVD lifespan, and uh, it also had a German DVD release, uh, which was English friendly because it had uh, the English soundtrack and also had reinstated snippets of violence, as we discussed. But the movie is also now on Blu-ray from Shout Factory in the US, uh, and they ported over extras such as the Stuart Whitman, Monty Hellman audio commentary that's uh, from the Anchor Bay Region 1 release. So, you know, when they have the longer snippets of violence playing, obviously uh, it's only a few seconds long, so they can resync the commentary to fit the action on screen now. Yeah, cool. Just to clarify, that that Anchor Bay DVD does contain the UK cinema print. Right. So again, we can confirm that that didn't contain the um, the added violence, whereas obviously the German DVD. And it's mainly in that beach scene. Um, I think uh, most of the cuts is in that beach scene where Tilong uh, kills off a couple of uh, characters with uh, this uh, hook and what have you. So. Yeah, there's a small bit when the uh, shoot room's getting roughed up as well, where it changes the quality of the print does. And I thought, is it, did, they, did they cut this? Because it's only like a few punches and kicks, but apparently. So yeah, if you knew if the violence was in it during the US theatrical print, let us know. But I, I don't know uh, as of now. And also, uh, if you if, if if you are in the process of writing to us and you have the Blu-ray, do let us know if... Uh, and, and if you're sexy. If you're sexy. If the uncut elements are the same quality as the rest of the feature, do let us know. Or if they are lower quality elements that they had to um, uh, paste in there. So. Yep. Uh, but uh, at any rate, uh, we are done for this versus uh, episode. And if I were to go and with the winner, uh, was... winner was, I think George uh, George is the clear winner here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, bit more energetic. Bit more energetic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just a bit more. Yeah. 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 We, I don't want to bag on uh, Stuart Whitman too much. But yeah, I mean, George is just like, you know, he, he's in it to win it. I mean, the commitment's there. And I think that makes for uh, a much better film um, when you have that in your leading man. Mm. But very much uh, nice pieces to watch to see uh, uh, to see Hong Kong do its thing uh, in co-production fashion. That's always fun because uh, it, it was fairly common at Shaw Brothers. Um, 
they, they did a couple of Italian co-productions as well. Those uh, uh, Superman against the Orient, which took this Italian sort of comedy team, crime fighting team, and put Lolita and uh, Shizu in these uh, Superman costumes as well. Looks ludicrous, but it's kind of cool that Shaw Brothers, they did this on the Shaw Brothers stages. I mean, one of the best co-productions aside from Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, speaking of Lolita, probably... Uh, a blood bunny or the stranger in the gunfighter with law lead and leave and cleave nice that's a that's a devastating combo if i ever heard of one it's a it's a, it's a cool western and they, they make a good team they really make a good team so it's uh shaw brothers meets uh, uh spaghetti westerns uh even if it was not in the western heyday because uh it's in the 70s too but it's a nice light sometimes uh, quite naughty uh, spaghetti Western, so because they're, they're looking for clues and like pieces of a map or something, and they're all tattooed on ladies' backsides. So, so they have to look for that. Yeah, and always bringing it with the smart jeez. All good fun, and um, uh, we are done anyway for this episode. Uh, thank you, Jay Lee, for programming it for us. And uh, uh, so the versus episode between Stoner and Shutter is now done. For all your podcast on fire network needs, go to podcastonfire.com and check out our prior versus episodes on uh, the Skyhawk versus the Master of Kung Fu and uh, when Taekwondo strikes versus Heroes of the East. And uh, we're going to do more in the future, so uh, look out for that because uh, Jay has served us up with some uh, plentiful material that, that we haven't talked of. That's going to be fun to talk of and to pair up with um, uh, with uh, one another. So thanks Hell to yeah. Jay for that. Looking forward to it. Whether I just listen to it or you decide that you don't want me here. Either way, I'm going to have a good time. You're a good fit regardless of the show, but you, uh, you're a Bond fan. You like Lazenby. So, you know, you, you are my first and only choice because we're going to talk to George Lazenby. Thanks, Ken. That means, that means so much. That means so much to me. It's nice to have a, a friend. And on that note, <laughs> we're going to leave each other. We're done now. Shut up. Go away. Au revoir. Thank you very much, Tom, for an enlightening discussion. I enjoyed your perspective. And thank you, everybody, for listening. So uh, this is uh, us signing off from Podcast on Fire. My name is Ken B. And with me was Tom KW, who's going to try and sign off without talking for 20 minutes straight. So take us out. See you later, guys. Cheers for listening. Good one. (laughs) Cut, 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 cut. (laughs) 